was desperate, you know, at the time I was 17, 18, unemployed, you know, and I was desperate to, you know, to get a break. And I knew that if I did get a try, I would, you know, I would grab the chance. I think it was always going to be boxing. I mean, I stepped into the gym as a 10 or 11 year old. Boxing just took hold of my heart straight away. I love everything about the sport of boxing. Hello, I'm Marie Crow, and this is We Become Heroes, the RTE sport podcast that explores how elite athletes and sports people reach the top of their game and the lessons that they learned along the way. I'm delighted to say that my guest today is former Ireland rugby captain Rory Best. Rory, thank you so much for doing this. I'm always really curious, uh, a former Ireland rugby captain, and then you you retire from the game. What does life look like for you? Um, life at the minute is, is very busy, I think. When you spend so long, and we were lucky, we had our kids reasonably young. Really, what what I thought was going to be the end of my career, but I ended up playing for <laughs> many years into my thirties that I didn't think. So they kind of played a little bit of of second fiddle. It's only now when you look back on it that you realise how much sacrifice and how little I probably saw them when I was playing. So it's been quite nice to reconnect with with the family again, having weekends back, and uh, it's just trying to be. A little bit normal um so it's okay it's it's very different you miss loads of aspects of rugby but um you're trying to find a way to get sort of the structure and stability that you had previously in rugby into everyday life so um yeah it's been interesting and and i have the farm that i well don't do is I, th- I think when i retired i thought i would be on there all the time but just other things have have drawn me away a bit but it's something that i love to get back to as much as i can yeah, nice thing to, to have in the background as well. And are the kids into sport? They love sport. <laughs> the the eldest is sort of rugby. He's rugby mad. He's 11. He's just started the, the secondary school up here. And uh, then my daughter is plays a little bit of hockey, but she dances a lot on gymnastics. The dancing takes up <laughs> most of her life to be honest uh, she thinks she does more spends more time dancing than I used to playing rugby and then the youngest is uh, he's in loves his soccer and uh, soccer and kind of he does a bit of gymnastics but uh, he's soccer mad I think he's adamant that he won't play rugby because he thinks I want him to play rugby he's kind of that sort of mentality but as long as he's doing something and um, they all love it and they all love yeah. it so it's great and any reservations about them going into rugby now when you when you look at the game and the way it is and I know you're comparing apples and oranges with kids and adults but very quickly an 11 year old turns into a 15 year old and it's a different game then yeah I think that, that when you're a parent you look at it differently than when you were a player you know you didn't because you're you're worried about your own safety you don't you just go and do it you don't think about that um I think as a parent you have to be you're always concerned about their safety but I think what I sort of look at the level that he plays as an under 12s at the minute and I kind of see the impacts that are happening and and anytime they get a bit of a knock how well they're looked after and, and all the protocols that are now in place to help with especially head knocks um and then some people ask me that and what they compare as the impacts they see on let's say this Saturday against England or couple of weeks ago against France and they kind of go, oh, well, if, if my son was in that, would I be worried? Well, if my Ben was playing in Twickenham this weekend, of course, I'd be very, very worried for the safety. But the, the what you see on television, people are trained for that. And I think the big thing and, and the reassurance you take is that 
the unions and World Rugby as a governing body take it really, really seriously. So it's a contact sport. Unfortunately, knocks and bumps happen, um, but it's trying to mitigate those as much as possible. It gives me a little bit more assurance that that they are going to be looked after and ultimately rugby give me so much not just you know at that top level where you get to travel and you play and all the highs but even coming up through when i think of all the teammates that i played with that became friends or that are friends and just that the activity and everything you get from with it it's just it's like every sport i, I don't wouldn't mind what sport to play it just happens to be that i love rugby yeah and what about then we'll say if you were just to have Ben in mind and his friends and that generation, would you like to see any changes to the game for maybe when they're coming through in a, in a few years? I think I would like there to be more space created, you know, so that it's not just uh, about bumping into into brick walls constantly. I would love to see them getting the offside line sorted out. And I suppose you look at you look at other sports and you look at something like soccer, where the, the assistant referees are effectively, they marshal the offside line and the flag goes up. And while I wouldn't want the game to stop every time they think somebody's slightly encroached, it's maybe a case of, of a constant sort of communication with the referee to say, look, they're, all, they're offside and to get them back. And whether we can get the offside line back a little bit or something, because I just look at it now and I would love there to be more space. Because I think what more space creates is actually where smart rugby players are as important as your big power athletes because that's the bit that sort of I look at myself coming through as a kid and like I wasn't a supreme athlete or certainly not compared to what's on display now but what I was able to do was, was I'd like to think I was able to think my way and use rugby smarts and, and I would love that my kids or that generation that the thing that rugby prides itself on is it's a game for everyone and that you worry that it's going away if it's a game for everyone as long as they're really fast really quick and really heavy um and you know i wouldn't like that to see when you're thinking about young kids being sorted into the pathways that that is the first thing they look for is the athletic ability i, I just it doesn't sit particularly well with me that yeah and I, and I think that you could probably apply that to nearly every sport now like when you look at soccer or GAA the supreme athletes as they're described are the ones that are being brought through and if you're a late developer um, late bloomer like often you can get left behind and maybe not get picked for those development academies and the gap just becomes so big then from that specialised training it's hard to make it up if you were coming through now do you think that you would have made it through? Um, <laughs> you know I often think about that and um, I'm not sure. I think the reality is I nearly didn't make it through anyway. Um, was just missing out on the National Academy at the time um, whenever I was leaving school and I went off to university in England in Newcastle upon Tyne and um, sort of participated in some activities that probably weren't that conducive to being a professional rugby player. And look, I loved my time at university um, and probably ended up getting a a more rounded university experience than maybe the guys that were in the academy. And um, I kind of look at it now and, and like the point we just were talking about that would I be picked up for being a good rugby player that maybe could develop his athletic abilities? My worry is it isn't. And, and I worry about this kind of forcing people into the gym. And that wasn't me. Like I used to put weights down in my school program um, instead of a study period but I wouldn't go to weights I would go out and I would kick the ball around I would pass against the post I'd just do 
I just love being outside with the ball, playing around. And um, I just am not 100% sure that I would have been exactly, would have ticked enough boxes now. But um, hopefully there's still that system to pick up people that, that, that they can develop into, I will call myself an athlete now that I'm retired. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think maybe the more people that we see in the roles and even like somebody like Craig Casey, you know, you're looking at him and thinking, right, he's not the, the biggest guy ever. He's obviously just really good at his game then. Yeah, totally. And and I think guys like Craig Casey, Michael Laurie up in Ulster, you know, guys that actually are showing that, yes, that, that you can improve someone's athletic performance, but actually that there is a real place for smart people that understand how to not just put themselves into the right position, but actually put other people in the right position. Okay, this is about you now. Let us get into that. Can you tell me your first, your earliest memories of sport? Uh, my earliest memories are probably the British and Irish Lions Tour of 1989. I remember we used to, to go, or still do, go on holiday up to, to Donegal, a small place called Portneau. And used to have the old, you know, we had to tune in the TV and try to find the perfect picture with this. The aerial one was, it had probably been ripped off on the, on the journey up and it was a coat hanger in. And I remember Gavin Hastings sort of running out carrying that lion uh, in Australian 89. And just, you don't remember a lot of it, but I remember sort of getting up in the morning on the Saturday and that was what we, we did as a family. We watched this. And also in the same place, ironically, in Donegal, I remember watching the... Italian 90 was was a tournament that I, I really loved and um, I sort of some for somebody I suppose because Packy Bonner was up mm -hmm. like everyone said he lived just across he could point across the sea to the other side of Donegal where he lived I think probably everyone in Donegal pointed across the sea <laughs> exponentially and said that's where he lived but just sort of like some of the saves he made and the penalty shootout and, and losing so narrowly to that um, Italy team in the quarterfinals was just for some reason it was just something that always lived with me and it's maybe as much about the venue as to, and being in Donegal as, and having nothing else to do except watch sports <laughs> probably driving down the green at the time. Yeah, or the old dubious Irish summers, you never know what you're going to get when you go on holidays, you have to make the most of it. So who were your heroes then? Um, I think probably a big hero of mine growing up was Gordon Hamilton, mainly because of that, the 1991 World Cup um, that quarter final against Australia where he sort of made, made that big long run down to score what at the time and I remember being in Lansdowne Road felt like it was going to be the winning try to get Ireland into a semi-final um, which unfortunately with a, a last play by Australia turned out not to be the case but I think when you're a kid you sort of your heroes are the people that you, you reenact those moments and I remember sort of being out in the front lawn at home and sort of nearly running a furrow down the, the garden, reenacting this try up and down. And there was another try by Noel Mannion as well in um, in Cardiff, I think, that he scored. And that was the, you know, those are the bits that I reenacted. Were your family sporty? Was it like one of those households that it was, you know, you're kind of, everything that you do is going around, uh, it's been set by a fixture and, and, you know, you're always going places and doing things and surrounded by sport? Yeah, we were probably surrounded by rugby as much as as much as anything um like my dad played and my uncle both played for Banbridge and our Saturdays would have been in to play mini rugby I have two older brothers we're sort of two years apart um and it was mini rugby in the morning and then it was either hang around the club to wherever 
the dad playing at home or else it was hop in the car and drive around Ulster because Banbridge were a junior team then and, and watch sort of wherever he was and then get home and wait for him to come home from the rugby club and probably have a have dinner and a and a bit of a toy fight and like that was a big part anywhere we went on holidays we generally went to some kind of sporting venue if we could whether it was a soccer match or a cricket match if we were in across in the UK and th- th- it was just a, a really really big part even Sunday afternoons I remember like we didn't we rarely skied as a family but we used to watch ski Sunday because it led into rugby <laughs> special um so yeah it was just a, it was a big big part of growing up so two older brothers I'd love to get the stats on the amount of professional athletes and sports people that come through that are the youngest in family was it really competitive with you guys it was very competitive I think uh, Simon being the eldest is very much an older brother and then Mark in the middle as we're sort of finding out now that we have kids is very much a second child and um, certainly a second child of the same of the same gender and uh, he was unbelievably competitive to the extent where he blew his top quite regularly <laughs> and um, I kind of came behind and being the youngest you, you give away a little bit of size and strength but you always had to have enough fight in you to make sure that, that you could keep up and I didn't maybe didn't blow my top the way Mark would have, but I certainly didn't like didn't like losing and, and always try to hold my own and, and we used to have Sunday afternoons before ski Sunday rugby special, a bit of a, a match in the in the front garden and my dad and my grandfather and occasionally my uncle would have played and it invariably was um I was trying to get stuck in against somebody when you're eight and nine, four years is it's quite an advantage to give away to my eldest brother. Um but you always, you tried your best and mm-hmm. you did everything. And it's certainly, I feel it definitely set me up for, for what would come in later years. So what stage did you realise that you had a little bit of talent for rugby? Um, I think probably realised that I, that I was pretty good at it in the, the end of a primary school. Um, we had a small primary school, 65 pupils at it. And we managed to qualify for the Ulster finals. Um, through our local events, we went to Ravenhill as it was then and played against all the big schools with four, five, six, seven hundred pupils in it. And um, probably then, and a lot of it, when I look back then and compare it to now, it was a lot about my organization as well as my ability to play. You know, we kind of moved, we created moves to get with a couple of people that were really fast that maybe weren't the best rugby players, but it was about using maybe my skill set of being able to pass quite well at that age to be able to do a big pass across and you know what it's like it's like it's like um, bees around a honey pot and rugby so we actually if you can move the ball 10 meters across the pitch there's acres of space so we used to do little moves and bits and pieces like that which i came up with and that probably was the, the first time that i realized that i was able to think about the game and and be pretty good at it were there other sports that you played as well I uh, played uh, a lot of soccer and tennis growing up when I was in sort of secondary school. I played a bit of cricket and that was as much as anything to get out of class um, just because there was an opportunity to go and play a ball sport and and to get out. But I would have sort of, especially in school, I would have played anything. Um, we, we were probably a little bit limited in, in the sports that we were offered, um, but certainly I would have given everything and, and generally found a way to be reasonably good at it. You know, if I was indoor football, I would find a way to kind of use the, my, my body weight and strength to kind of maybe knock a few people over. Maybe not strictly legal, 
but you know, when you're playing in school, nobody cares. The same with basketball. So any sport, you kind of you would find a way to be good at it because it, it sort of mattered to me from a reasonably young age to be quite good at something. Really, like you just you were always you always had that kind of awareness that being good at something was a good thing. Yeah, and I was quite like I say, I was I was quite inwardly competitive. I, I wouldn't be somebody that would have overly showed how much it mattered to me in case I didn't, in case I wasn't good at it or didn't succeed. Um, I just didn't like the fact that if I wasn't good at it, you know, you'd always, you could always show that oh, it doesn't matter whenever deep down yeah. it really, really did matter. So, but like right through school, it would have been, um, and it's funny, you kind of think that you have this persona, but whenever I was in the Ulster squad, I would have thought that was the way I was, but occasionally people would say they're being competitive and my name would come up and uh, <laughs> not necessarily the way I thought I was portraying myself, but um, goes to show that your true character will always, when people spend enough time with you, they'll see it. So you're strategically competitive. I like that. <laughs> so when, at what stage did you realise or think about making sport a career for yourself and could you see a pathway? Um, I think it was probably in around 1999 so I was going into my last year at school um, the year before I played Ulster schools um, well actually nearly two years young because I was born in August but mum kind of threw us out the door whenever I had just turned four so we really I think legally now we shouldn't have been in primary school at that age my middle brother was the same he was August too um, so I was sort of playing young but also playing um, a year young at the schools level and then my brother brother finished university Simon and he was offered a contract by Newcastle Falcons and Ulster and he's kind of you look you're looking on as, as four years younger kind of interested in sport and rugby and sort of saying that actually rugby could become a career choice you know when you see when you hear all people getting contracts um you sort of but when it becomes your brother and so close to you and you kind of can see there's almost a bit of, well, if he can do it, I can do it. I sort of followed a little bit in playing Ulster schools, hopefully playing Ireland schools that year. Um, and sort of that was a, that seemed to me to be somewhere where if I could keep improving that I could end up being a professional rugby player. And you could see the pathway. The pathway for me was that year to play um, Ireland schools and then finish school and, and be into the Irish National Academy. And then that's, from there, National Academy, give yourself a chance to be a professional rugby player. Were you big into goal setting? Uh, not then. Um, probably. Suppose I didn't really goal set until mid twenties. Uh, kind of a couple of years into my career, a couple of things happened, and um, I wasn't making the most of my ability. I didn't get brought on in a game that Ireland were losing, and I got brought up the sideline. Um, I kind of looked at my Ulster performance and it was kind of like get fit in the summer and then hang on to that fitness throughout the year instead of being able to improve on it. Um, and I just had to really change my lifestyle a lot um, work really hard on my fitness. And that's whenever I started to work on goal setting on the mental side of the game, visualization and, and probably changed myself as a, from being somebody that happened to be quite good at rugby into a proper rounded professional. It was good to have that awareness because like often that passes people by and it's too late to almost fix those things. 
So when you were working on trying to be the best that you could be along the way, what did you work on most if you were to say, like, what was the crucial thing for your development? I think probably the, the big thing for me was working on, once you take the actual game itself, it was working on my fitness. Um, as like I say, like ultimately, um, I wasn't I'm not blessed as the best athlete ever. But I always thought I was smart. But what was happening was in the first couple of years, professional, I wasn't fit enough to be where I need, where I could see I needed to be, and I could see it needed to be there before somebody else. Because if I didn't make the ground up in my head first, I couldn't make it up physically. So I worked really hard in those early, sort of once I had the the epiphany. Nearly, I worked really hard in my fitness to get myself really fit, and then post that, it was trying to be as fast as I could. I used to go in on the days off. Um, I lived about sort of a 40 minute drive away from, from the training ground, but I used to go in on my days off before we had kids and before I got married and worked on, on speed drills. And nobody, it was back in the day when, you know, when you had your day off, your day off and training finished, everyone left and no one did extras. It's not like it is now where everyone is always adding value. Um, so like I used to go up there on my own with the, with the speed coach and just do like a 45 minute, 60 minute session, just going right, well, I know I need to be faster. I know I'm never going to be as fast as a, as a Tommy Bow, but what I can be is be as fast as my body will allow me to be. So that was the two big things that I worked really hard on because I always felt that sort of the skills and stuff I worked on and my throwing, I worked on a lot and probably more recently, that was sort of stuff that came reasonably natural to me and, and thinking of the game because I watched a lot of rugby. But the stuff that I had to try to add on were, were those two. Speed is such a fascinating one because it's it's the perception is that you, you you know you either have it or you don't. How much gains were you able to make from a speed point of view? Yeah, I think I, I made a lot, and I think it was it's all relative, isn't it? You know, I sort of was able to get up probably well over like one one and a half meters per second, which whenever you're going from the sort of mid sevens up to the sort of the mid the mid eights like that's a like that's a fairly big improvement to make over the time and probably as much as anything it was my ability to to, to look like I could move well and then footwork I used to do loads and loads and loads of footwork because it was so important to me you know whenever you're carrying in close contacts be able to put a little bit of footwork on it my defense which probably when I first started was a bit of a weakness and then turned it into a strength because of that sort of footwork stuff and being able to if somebody stepped me that it wasn't just like turning the Titanic, that I could actually move reasonably quickly. So, um, yeah, look, I was able to make a lot of gains and probably the biggest, the most satisfying thing was when you look back at, at yourself running, that whenever you needed to put a bit of a burst of speed on, that you actually looked like somebody that could run properly. It's really good to hear because the speed thing, you know, so many people are almost defeated by it, but to actually hear a story where it, was improved by so much that it really helped your game is like I'd say that would mean a lot for people that maybe wouldn't have access to the expertise that they would have in a professional setting like even just people playing their sport for for leisure but wanting to be good on it knowing that if you put in a little bit of work you can definitely get faster yeah absolutely and even like like all these ladders or like you don't need a ladder necessarily you, know, you can just do cones and just quick feet over it because like once I got to the stage where then like maybe the family started to demand a little bit more time and I could have still would have, would have went up and down to Belfast in those days off but I also we have a bit of an astroturf at home and I had seen me 
um, out on the day off and just doing a little bit of footwork around cones and through cones and just always just trying to keep everything sharp. So yeah, it's definitely, and you can work on it wherever you want. I remember one of the guys I played with was a really, really good sidestep. And he said, how did you become such a good sidestep? And he said, oh, it's so funny. When I used to walk to school, I used to try to step the telegraph poles or the, the street lights. And I was always just, even when walking, it was just like step. And I think even when you're doing these things, you're constantly just muscle memory, muscle memory. And then you just, when you go to do it, your body knows how to do it and just do it a little bit faster. Yeah, it's really good advice. Um, so in terms of your career, was there a moment where you thought, I belong here, I can be a top-class athlete, I can be at the top of my game? Um, I think probably the my Ireland first start for Ireland in 2006. So I made my debut in 05. At the end of that season, we toured New Zealand. So I made my debut um, in the same autumn as Jerry Flannery made his debut and kind of I got injured. I was due to start that game, um, got injured. Jerry then was on the bench and came on. He got his first cap that day and we went into that Six Nations and I thought um, 2006 Six Nations, I thought that, you know, I had as good a chance as Jerry. Jerry got the start and I barely played. We went on a summer tour to New Zealand and that was whenever I came up to the side of the pitch to come on with about 20 odd minutes to go, because the new Jerry had been, he'd been sick and wasn't feeling great. So I thought, you know, get on here. It was the second test. And then I sat there sort of, I think it was 25, then 20, and I've got the subsuit off, I'm ready to go. And the game eventually finished and I hadn't come on. And what had happened was they'd wanted Neil Best to come up the sideline, not me. And I just remember thinking, like I must be awful to not to not even with Jerry being sick and me standing there for 25 minutes to still not bring me on in a game that we were more than the score behind so I went away and worked really hard on my fitness and I remember the following autumn Jerry was out with a shoulder injury which which allowed me kind of almost to have not free reign at it because you still had to work and Frankie Sheehan was there and he was coming back from sort of bits and pieces and I remember getting a start there and really worried about would I be able to cope with the intensity of starting for the first time for Ireland and we played in South Africa and um and I just remember being I don't think you ever feel comfortable playing at international level, but I don't remember being so stressed the whole way through the game that I couldn't function. I remember being able to move and fun- and and be able to compete at that level. Um and that's what you want to do. You want to be put yourself in a position where you can compete every minute of, of the game or every minute that you're on. And, and certainly that sort of really hung home to me that all the fitness work that I'd done, because mm-hmm. once I come back from New Zealand, it took sort of two weeks, stayed on for two weeks um, in Australia. And then really as soon as I came home, I didn't take any more holidays. I just went, right, I'm going to have to train. If everyone else has taken another two weeks, I want to start now. And I'd, I'd work really hard for whatever number of months until November. And then to actually then finish that game and think, yeah, that I can play at this level was really, it's nice when you put the work in and, and you get that sort of, almost that sort of that gratification that you can do it. And it really just keeps you motivated and incentivized to keep doing it. So that was, that was definitely the moment when I felt that I could play top level rugby. What about setbacks, Rory? Did you, is there one or, or a few that stick in your mind as that, that was a difficult time or that was hard to overcome? With that, um, oh, a lot. Certainly, <laughs> that New Zealand one was a big moment, and it was—it was almost like a point in time to go right. I need to change 
really changed my physique. Um, I remember at the very start when I didn't get into the National Academy, um, I was told I wasn't good enough that I wasn't big enough to be a prop and I wasn't mobile enough to be a hooker. And I probably took it in the wrong way and I kind of threw the toys out. I didn't throw the toys out of the pram. I just sort of went, I just can't deal with this anymore. And I ended up going off to Newcastle and saying earlier just about how rugby nearly passed me by. Um, Whereas then in that New Zealand thing was a motivator for me to go right, I need to be fitter. I took off the pitch um, in sort of 2004, the end of my first season with Ulster because the liners were so bad. So that sort of got me, I need to do more mental work. You know, it can't just be purely about the physical training. I need to do a little bit more visualization, which helped me with my throwing. Um, remember the Lions tour in 2013, not getting selected, and that was a real big one, mainly because of the public nature of it. People assume that the players in question, and whether you're in or out, that you get notification beforehand. You don't, unfortunately, every time you see it is whenever it's on television. Um, and I'll never forget we were training, and it's sort of as you get through the training session, you sort of you get the feeling that this isn't happening. And my poor wife and eldest son were watching at home at the time. And um, Dylan Hartley was probably brought instead of me. And my wife said for years, she used to get nearly nightmares of seeing Dylan Hartley's face flashing up. Um, But then to see him, that setback, unlike the very first one with the academy, I was able to say to that setback, right, well, look, maybe I'm doing something that isn't good enough. And that then changed my, my practice around throwing and when I need to go away and, and do more it's not just enough to do the throws that you do as part of the team and then a little bit of extras I went away I went right well I need to make sure that on the days off so that's I started to come back up to Belfast then and throw on the day off and probably was throwing at the end of my career I was probably throwing about 100 extra balls a day over the sort of five days in the week um, but that was all from that that setback of 2013, and it was awful. Like, I wouldn't be somebody that's overly emotional, but that was, it felt tough because you let everyone down. Mm-hmm. I remember sort of hearing afterwards at Banbridge, my local club, but because people had expected me to go, they'd, they were all geared up to do like a big announcement and to do you know, posters around the club and all of this with me in my Lions gear. And that you feel that you've led a club that had put so much into you as a kid. And as a, as a young adult, you felt you let them all down. And, and it was really, I'll never forget going back to Ravenhill. So that announcement was on the Wednesday. And we played on Friday night against Cardiff. And ne- like you nearly feel, it sounds ridiculous now, but you nearly felt embarrassed running onto the pitch because everyone that was there expected you to go. And you felt you'd let everyone down until you, um, whenever they announced my team, when they announced the, the team, and they announced my name, there was Almighty Roar, and then with about 10 minutes to go, it was brought off, and the place just went berserk. And that sort of, it kind of brings you back into going, okay, you, that wasn't the day at that level at that point in time, but ultimately, you're still doing a lot of good work. Is that a really hard part of being a, a rugby player at your level, just the the public scrutiny and the fact that, you know, you're kind of sharing a lot of these moments with an awful lot of people? Yeah, it's incredibly difficult, um, and it's it's not just that people say, oh, it's the tough times, but it, it's the tough times, yes. And then the tough times, they have the ability, the public nature has the ability, like I just said about that, where you also get 
and appreciation, which brings you back again. But also the good times. Like when we won the, the two Grand Slams that I was lucky enough to be involved in, because that is such a big moment and everyone is so invested in it, wherever you go after that, you don't get any peace. And like people are very well-meaning. But whenever you're 2018, so my youngest was three and my eldest was eight, and you know what it's like when you go out with young kids, you know, they, they can't behave perfectly all the time. But <laughs> yeah. you're constantly on display. And, and yeah. that's the bit where you're sort of going, you're trying to kind of bring one of them back into line and somebody's coming for a picture and autograph and they're going and you just, and it, it is it is difficult. Um, having said that, I would always have been of the opinion that, like, it's a long time ago now, but I do remember being that young kid getting to meet a hero or even somebody in television and how they react to you actually goes a long way to either demotivating or motivating you to be it and, and you try your best to give as much time as you can because you don't know which of those kids is going to be impacted by you in a really positive way and it, and it might help you don't know what they're going through as well so it might actually help them just in everyday life to be happier but it might also motivate them to be a top level sports person. And you have to always keep that in mind and you have to maybe picture either yourself or your kids being that person going up um, as hard as it is sometimes. But look, it's, it sort of is what it is and it comes to the territory. Yeah, exactly that. Um, so just in terms of then your career, and actually before I get to that, you, you spoke there about all the extra throws that you, you did. And it's funny because, you know, we rarely hear about that from hookers. We usually just hear about the tens and the amount of kicks that they have to do and the hours that they spend. But even just to hear you saying that you did all that that extra work, you know, it's I suppose look, your position is a little bit unglamorous and we don't often get that insight into it. So like, how much work did you have to put in to get to the level that you're at? Um, I was somebody that I'd be quite quite obsessive, it'd be sort of very, I have a routine, and it's funny, like goal setting when younger, and I just sort of went out and used to play when I was younger, and the, the older I got, the more it became about routine, structure, goal setting, making sure that at every box tick, getting into Saturday, because I could look back and give myself confidence around that. Um, so I became somebody that, that had to do the 100 throws, or if I happened to do 110 one day and we won at the weekend, right, well, this week it has to be 110, and it just kept adding up. So, like, my week would have been the normal training that everyone does, and then I would have found a time to do a bit of extra footwork, the speed, it kept doing that, and it might have been out early or it might have been finished late, and then I would have would have just done my throwing every day. Um, at least once a week I would have done some tackle technique, I've done some ball carrying, some passing, um, it kind of is funny, it got to the stage of the World Cup in 19 where the sort of the last two people left on the pitch were always myself and Johnny. And, you know, we were also the two oldest in the squad. Everyone else was away getting rested up. And then I would just about be finished. I knew Johnny wouldn't be far off. And so I used to kind of wait around and go, do you want to do a bit of kicking? And we used to do a bit of kicking, a few drop goal competitions and stuff. <laughs> because it was also important to me that it was fun. Because like, rugby is brilliant and it's what we see at the weekends and the Ireland games, they're brilliant, they're high pressure, but it's also important that that fun element and the skill development. And, and that was the bit that I loved. That was a bit that was saying really early on in my school, it was about going out and kicking the ball around. So me and Johnny used to drop ball competitions and you'd have the trainer coming on and saying, 
you team to get off your feet. You're the two oldest. Go ahead, recover. And we go, no, no, a couple of minutes against a couple of minutes. And um, it was great. And like Johnny's such good. And he's such a perfectionist and wants to work hard as well. I used to love those little bits where it was just really me and him at the end. And we'd, we'd get to actually have a bit of fun for the what felt like the first time in that two-hour window when you're training and have to be the ones driving the standards in training. Was it fun, though, or was it secretly really competitive? <laughs> oh, it was incredibly competitive. It's a wee bit easier for me in the drop goes because I wasn't expected to win. So if I won, it was a real bonus. There's a bit more pressure to him, but still, you never want to lose anything. Yeah, I'd say that all right. So when you think of your career, who had the biggest impact on it, do you think, Roy? Um, I think my parents. Um, when I look way back, like my mum used to drive us everywhere. Um, and, you know, she was a big support. She used to watch us everywhere we went. Um, she used to actually film games for us. Um, and, like, I was a massive supporter. And then my dad as well, my points past primary school that I talked about, um, they didn't have many rugby until we got there. And it was actually probably more. My eldest brother, Simon, was in his last year when dad brought it in. So he only got one year of it, whereas I got, I think I played for four years at primary school. I was only a, I was basically a baby because they needed numbers. <laughs> um, the same at Banbridge. You know, my year was the first year that Banbridge had an under-14 team. Before that, you, you finished your mini-system and then you either went to a different club or you stopped playing. And, and dad went, no, we need to stop this. So he became the coach of that team that I played in for a couple of years. So like, they were a really, really big influence in my career. And actually, at the end of it, so it was 124 games. They kind of calculated up that they reckon they only missed live about six of them. So they did. So it was, you know, to travel. And you think some of the places that I played, you know, they were there all the time. Like the mum and dad traveled everywhere now invariably between test matches revolved around a couple of farm visits during the week <laughs> and maybe go to the beach or golf course for a month but it was yeah no they were everywhere in fact it was really really rare like six games in 124 that they weren't there oh there's such lovely memories to have just really really nice and what about performances so when you think of all the we'll say when you were playing as a kid and you were in the garden throwing the ball around and you were dreaming about that performance that you would one day have. Is there a performance that you that defines you? I think if I pick one, um, sort of between you'd be between two. Like remember the quarterfinal in two thousand fifteen and against Argentina, and I felt like I played really well in that. But I think if there was one performance I would that would define me would be my hundredth cap against Australia in Dublin, and I think it's. For a lot of different reasons, I think when all that pressure is normally shared around a team and all of a sudden you feel it on yourself because it's a it's a hundredth cap game for you, you know, it's your supposed to your big moment. And look, the boys were brilliant and you know that they probably give a little bit extra because you're always aware when it's somebody's landmark that you want to do well for them. So to have that pressure on and to play the way we did. And, and I just think that if ever there was kind of a game and maybe the way I played within that game that summed up my career is that, you know, we finished the game with, I think, Zebo was on the one wing, but it was Joey Carberry and Kieran Marmion in the back three. You know, these guys, and Joey hadn't played much back three. You know, we were, like, we picked up a couple of injuries. We got a really good start. Then Australia come back and actually got ahead and were dominating the game. But we found a way to dig deep. And to have that competitive edge just to fight for every little scrap that was going. 
and actually built their way back into the game and, and ended up winning it. And I think that that probably, for that whole team aspect and, and the way we just clawed, and I think we made the absolute most of what we had on the pitch in that day as a collective. And, and I think for me, and obviously like the pride that goes with it and with the kids running out with me for that game and then being able to do the lap of honour afterwards, um, that is probably the, when I think about a performance that defines me, I think that's probably it. <laughs> that's a pretty good one, to be fair. <laughs> what about your greatest success? What would you say that is? Um, I think the greatest success is Captain Ireland, um, just as a, as a whole. Um, you know, you could sort of, you could cherry pick bits in the middle of that where, you know, the, the two New Zealand games, the, the Grand Slam, um, the way game in South Africa. But I just sort of think the whole experience, like I'll never forget the first time I captained Ireland a couple of times before that, but to actually walk out for the first time at the Viva Stadium as the official captain against Wales. And we had a lot of injuries because it was post that World Cup in 15 and you know, Pete the ACL. Um, oh, I can't remember. We had Tommy Bow had broken his leg. Like we really had, it felt for the first sort of six or nine months of my captaincy that we would never get a full strength Ireland team in the pits. It just was always injury after injury. But I'll never forget, and I can still picture going down the tunnel for that first ever time at the Aviva against a Wales team that were coming to the stadium expecting to win because of the, the level of injuries we had. And, and to go out and to be that captain, to, to lead your team out. Um, and like that was it. We ended up with a draw. Um, so it was a really good performance, but it wasn't co compared to the New Zealand games and what was to follow. But just every time that you're able to lead that team out was just, it is the greatest thing you'll ever do. And sorry, second greatest, the greatest you'll ever do is when you're going out and actually winning something as a captain of Ireland. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the greatest thing you'll ever do is become a father. But <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, we're talking to <laughs> So what do you think your legacy will be? Um, I think my legacy will be about the, I hope it'll be about how the families are so included now in, in the games. And like I see it in Ulster and I see it in Ireland now where as soon as the game finishes, it's about that lap of honour with the kids in tow. And mm -hmm. there's a lot more kids than there was whenever, whenever I first had them, but they're all out now. And the players, like I really you could never fault the players for the way they welcomed my children into the changing rooms. And I know what it's like. You played 80 minutes. A lot of them weren't fathers at that stage. So, you know, the kids kind of can get can get in the way a bit. But the time that they spent with my children and just to see that happening now, and, and that's probably if you ask me what bits do I miss the most, it's it's that bit at the end, you know, with all the kids and it just feels like a, a release away from the pressure of the week. And and I would hope that some of the the examples that I set along the way in terms of making sure that the, par the partners and the kids were included as much as possible without being any distraction in the game. But once that was finished, that they were as important as we were. Um, I would hope that that would be my legacy as part of the, the Irish squad. And what about what's next then for you, Roy? Um, I think for me, it's sort of, love and spend time with the family. I am working with um, an insurance firm that are based in London and in Dublin um, with Aracus. And it, it's just about trying to build on 
ultimately just because I've changed profession doesn't mean that I don't want to be as successful as I was as a rugby player. The difference is when I was a rugby player starting off, I knew exactly what I needed to do to certainly keep progressing through. Whereas when you go into a business, it's all so different. But whenever you actually get down into the kind of the bare bones of it, all the attributes that, that made me a good player or a good captain or a good rugby player are really, really important in business. It's just actually learning how they're important and how to put them in. So I'm finding that a real challenge. Um, and that's, uh, I enjoy the TV stuff because there's a lot of it makes you watch the game. Like mm-hmm. You can get the Saturday afternoon and a game can be on and the kids are looking at you to go out and kick the ball around or Penny's trying to show you some dance routine she's made up and the game can be on in the background and you can be glancing at it. But actually, whenever you're talking about the game the next day or the next weekend, you actually have to watch it. And look, I love watching rugby. I love actually analysing rugby properly. So it's really good to have that has to be a bit of a priority at times and I have to focus on that. So that that's brilliant. It keeps me involved in rugby. And um, I did, I really enjoyed the coaching I did in November with Fiji. I just don't think that I wanted to consume me again and for it to be about all rugby six, seven days a week and the mood of the weekend yeah. and the family revolves around whether we've won or lost. Uh, but I do, look, I love staying involved in rugby a little bit. So, and then the farming. So there's plenty going on between the family, the farm, the parents, the rugby, the TV. Um, it's finding time for it all is yeah. uh, is probably the, the biggest issue I have. And there's a lot of years ahead of you as well. So who knows what's going to happen or where you're going to end up, um, where you end up going to go, where you're going to end up going or what path that you will follow. You've so much experience. And you've also given us so much as well, Rory, um, during your career. And as you said, like captaining your country is the most amazing thing. Um, so thank you very much for all of that and for joining me. And thanks everybody for listening and watching. Please like, subscribe and leave a review.